You are listening to Creation Talk, a creation.com podcast, proclaiming the truth to honor the Creator while providing credible answers. Well, good day, everyone. Welcome to uh, another podcast with Creation Ministries. This time we're going to talk about the Darwin Dictionary. And with me is Keaton Halley. So, what do you mean by the Darwin Dictionary then? I was inspired to write this article by uh, a comment that a pastor made one time. He said, many of the skirmishes in the culture wars are actually arguments over the dictionary. (laughs) That's because, you know, the terms we use can carry a lot of hidden assumptions and baggage. And uh, I think that idea applies to the creation evolution controversy as well. Mm -hmm. So, it's it's something a little bit different than most of our articles. You know, it's a, a piece of satire. And what I did is I just kind of came up with a list of terms that evolutionists commonly use, and then I defined them in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way to hopefully get a laugh, but then also make a serious teaching point. I think you may be right there because uh, they will use words uh, which they mean something to them, but differently for the general public. So they're not necessarily lying, but they're actually still deceiving, even if they don't know they're doing it. Yeah. So when evolutionists talk about all these ape men, what do they really mean? Yeah. Well, I've defined it here as ape men, noun, ever-changing imaginary creatures that inhabit museums and textbooks, concocted by speculation, wrapped in conjecture, bundled with an unhealthy do- dose of artistic license. Oh, that's strong words. Uh, why do you say that? <laughs> uh, well, of course, we've, we've done other podcasts about the so-called ape men and missing links, and we have lots of articles about this on creation.com if people want to uh, search for terms like Neanderthals and Australopithecines. I'm saying that these don't exist in the real world. They, they weren't historically real creatures, but they are often based on scraps of bones found by paleontologists. And then it's the, the artistic license that goes into reconstructing these fossils, you know, the sculptures you find in museums and textbooks that, um, that showcase you know, them as though they are partway between humans and apes. Especially they put them in a series, which goes from ape to men, and usually uh, dark to light when they do that. Of course, but you put them in a series, but do they necessarily live in a series or evolve in a series? Uh, that's a whole lot of assumption there, huh? Exactly. And so, so often, you know, evolutionists themselves, when, when the find is first announced in the news media, they trumpet it as though this, this absolutely proves that evolution is true. But you just wait a little while, and the scientific journals will publish papers from evolutionists themselves critiquing these finds mm-hmm. and showing that, you know, oftentimes they're, they're not any longer claimed to be missing links at all. Well, yeah, it's a bit weird that they say, well, we found the missing link. Well, okay, didn't you say that last year and the year before that and the year before that? So, you mean you didn't find it those other years? You only just found it now? Yeah. And I mean, some of them do endure, you know, for quite a while through time, um, but they might be moved off to a side branch and, and not thought any longer to be a direct ancestor. But as creationists, we can interpret those same bones to say they're, they're variations within a kind, mm. or in some cases, they're mixtures of human and ape bones. You know, that, that's probably the case with, with Lucy. Some of the bones that are claimed mm. uh, to belong to this, this Australopith kind, which means southern ape, uh, they, they are these extinct apes, which are predominantly ape bones, but some of the bones uh, seem to belong to humans as well. And that's documented in our literature. People can get the book Contested Bones by Roop and Sanford that uh, goes into detail about that. And our video that we did a while back, uh, Joel Tay and I did something on, on eight mm. men in general. So yeah. uh, look in our, our archives of podcasts. You can find a few things. 
Just to change um, subject from ape men to astronomy or even cosmogony, the birth of the universe. So what about the Big Bang theory? Yeah. All right. Well, I define that one as Big Bang noun, the logic bending theory that everything was produced when nothing at all exploded. Oh, how can nothing explode or in fact do anything? <laughs> well, yeah, that's the, that's the issue, isn't it? That's Commonly, the way evolutionists think of this, and you have, even have physicists, people like Lawrence Krauss, redefining the term nothing, right? Because conventionally, the term nothing means no thing, mm. the, the absence of anything, but he uses it in a way where you can, you know, he, he attributes things to nothing, like saying nothing is unstable or, you know, nothing gave rise to the universe, but... Um, yeah, nothing had a quantum fluctuation and nothing, okay, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But uh, that whole concept is just, it defies like the most bedrock principle of metaphysics that, that underlies all of science itself, that something can't come from nothing. Mm. You know, just like the, the sound of music, you know, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. <laughs> yeah, I like it. It's, it's fairly obvious, even to lay people. And of course, there are lots of scientific problems with, with the Big Bang as well that we've um, written articles about. Well, for instance, the missing dark matter, missing dark energy, and also the idea that the universe expanded ultra-fast, much faster than the speed of light even. That's the inflation model, which is the current Big Bang model. Uh, so, yeah, it's a lot of problems that we don't, people don't normally hear about, but you can find it all on our website and our books. Yeah, and there was that great uh, statement by some secular cosmologists. Um, I think it was a letter to New Scientists that, that they published. It was a critique saying that the Big Bang is based on all these ad hoc assumptions. So why should we marry our theology to a problematic scientific theory we could be widowed tomorrow exactly okay let's go go move from astronomy into biology one of the things you have is convergent evolution yeah for that one i wrote convergent evolution noun the position of refuge for evolutionists who think that complex sophisticated structures like camera eyes build snouts sticky tongues and electrosensory organs must have arisen multiple times by coincidence on separate branches of the evolutionary tree. Don't bother them with the odds. Oh, my goodness. So what, what is convergent evolution? Why don't we define that for people, Jono? Well, basically structures that couldn't possibly uh, have arisen from a common ancestor. So like, for instance, the um, insect eye and the human eye uh, didn't come from a common ancestor that had this sort of eye because the eyes are quite different in structure. So it means that they independently evolved these light sensory things called eyes but in a totally different way. So they converge to the same sort of um, yeah. uh, structure, well, same, same sort of function, but totally different structures to achieve this function. Yeah, so that's the evolutionary story. But of course, that, that really points to a flaw in their thinking, right? Because they, they so often use similarities as evidence for common design. Mm. But when they appeal to convergence, they're really saying, here's some similarities that defy the evolutionary predictions like eyes you mentioned, and I put some others in that mm. the definition. Uh, and, and specifically, the, even the, the camera eye that vertebrates have, yeah. you know, the octopuses have a similar camera lens system, mm. and yet no evolutionist would say it's because their common ancestor already had that eye. They say, just by chance, both vertebrates and octopuses separately evolved that camera type of eye, which is just ludicrous, right? That mm. It's hard enough to get an eye even once <laughs> by natural processes, blind forces aren't going to make it twice, that's for sure. But also, you wonder how many of the so-called homologies, which are things like our, our arm, a bird's wing, a whale's flip, were supposed to have come from a common ancestor, but then 
they can change their minds about that as well because they thought that whales came from Mesonicid because of some similarities um, they had. But now they believe whales came from artiodactyl, so it means that what they thought were homologies were actually homoplastic, which means come from convergence and not from common ancestry. So the opposite of homology is homoplasy. Mm-hmm. And so they had to revise their story. Genetics changed uh, the story, so they had, they had to readjust the, the evolutionary um, path line to say, oh, this is actually convergence, not common ancestry. Yeah, very good, right? It's so often, you know, when you just looked at the fossils and the, the gross anatomy, they told one story about how, you know, what's related to what, but then the DNA evidence, actually, the similarities there mm. show a different pattern. And so, the, the two stories contradict one another. So, yeah, it's a good point. So, move on to gill slits then? Sure. Gill slits, noun, folds in the skin of a developing human embryo, which are neither gills nor slits, but are so named in the service of evolutionary propaganda and its fraudulent recapitulation theory. So let's go move to sort of philosophy, uh, God of the gaps. Mm. Yeah, so this is a common charge that evolutionists throw out, right, to say that, um, that creationists are using an argument based on ignorance, right? They, uh, well, let me give, I'll give the definition here. God of the gaps, noun, the deceitful charge seemingly immune to correction that the case for a creator is based on ignorance rather than positive evidence, a misrepresentation which evolutionists believe will become legitimate if they just keep repeating it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's kind of based on my personal experience that I hear this argument over and over, even after creationists and intelligent design proponents have given uh, powerful responses, they never learn from those responses, it seems to me. Yeah, what they claim, well, uh, that God is in the gaps in our knowledge because we're learning so much more. We're squeezing God uh, into an ever narrower and narrower uh, gap, which then he he squeezed out. Uh, but is this yeah once like once science discovers the you know a naturalistic cause, then there's no longer room to say God did he he was the cause of this phenomenon, right? And yet, um, that's actually not what what we say at all. I mean, mm-hmm. I should know this. I mean, I've written books on these sorts of things. <laughs> Yeah, you've got a whole book on uh, the design argument. Right, and the thing is, it's based on what we do know. It's mm-hmm. essentially, well, we know certain things in our own experience produced signs of design, which is basically irreducible complexity, to use Michael Behe's word, or uh, functionality th- threshold, to use John Sanford's term. You see, so we know that intelligence is required to produce these, so we're making an argument from analogy that if we see these same things in living creatures, it must have been intelligence to produce that. It's an argument from analogy yeah. and what we actually do know. Yeah, exactly. You know, we, we can, even in our intuitions, we can sort of distinguish between things that the laws of nature are capable of producing and something that took uh, a mind. To, like, you think of the dis- difference between cloud formations that might superficially look like something you recognize versus skywriting. You know, mm. you see an advertisement for Coca-Cola in the sky written in the clouds, and you know that a mind was ultimately responsible for that. Well, and, and the information in our DNA is certainly analogous to the writing in the sky and not yeah. analogous to the formation of a cloud. It's actually a very deep analogy of language, codes, decoding machinery. So the language, is, the analogy is very, very tight, not um, fallacious. Yeah, and also I have to wonder: Is science actually leaving more uh, squeezing gaps in, or they're actually discovering more gaps? To use <laughs> their terms, you see, because when I first joined CMI, we didn't know about the ATP synthase motor, for instance. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, the, when I look at when scientists are trying to do not just operational science, day to day, how does the universe work? 
but trying to explain how did things come to exist in the first place, what's their origin, the naturalistic accounts there fail time and time again. And the more we learn about the universe, the more gaps there are. I, th- I think you're right about that. And also they use naturalism of the gaps, which is, uh, leads into our next term, which is methodological naturalism. Uh, so that one's kind of a mouthful. So n- naturalism, of course, is the idea that nature is all that exists. There are no supernatural things, no gods or angels. Our evolutionists are not necessarily necessarily saying that we have to be naturalists to do science properly, but they do say we need to think like naturalists. So we should have a methodology of naturalism. Even if we believe in God, we need to leave him out and just only appeal to naturalistic causes. So my uh, critique of that is methodological naturalism, noun, the arbitrary rule preemptively dismissing supernatural causes to which all scientists must pledge allegiance quick before anyone notices the ingenious design anywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> oh, good. Kind of that, because it might be a design that we're accountable to if we, if we yeah. do that. My goodness. Yeah. It's, so this is really just a rule that people have made up that, that, that says we have to do science this way, mm. but it's, it is arbitrary that why determine your conclusion before looking at the evidence? You should follow the evidence where it leads. And if it points to a designer, then we should be willing to accept that. But certainly, uh, there are certainly admissions from people like uh, Richard Lawton, who is a Marxist and a geneticist who is very clear that we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. So he's mm-hmm. basically admitting no matter how silly this, the, the, the uh, naturalistic theories are, we must stick to naturalism at all costs. Yeah, and it's, it's just such a shame because that it doesn't seem to me to be a necessary way to do science. Again, if you make the distinction between operational science in the present, yeah, you might have a, a weak form of methodological naturalism where we're not invoking God every time we don't understand something. Uh, so, it, yeah, it is related to the last entry, the God of the Gaps. But for origins, it's perfectly legitimate to appeal to a supernatural cause. Science investigates nature, but it shouldn't limit itself to saying all causes must be naturalistic. That's to prejudge the outcome before examining the evidence. And it would certainly be news to all the great creationists who founded modern science that they love so much. It was founded by creationists. So clearly, you don't need methodological naturalism to, to do great science. Yeah, and you've got a good article about that on creation.com if people search for what does it take for science to work at all. Uh, it helpfully shows that many of the presuppositions of science itself are rooted in a Christian way of thinking. They're, they're biblical teachings that gave rise historically to the scientific revolution. If the shortcut there is creation.com, why science? Okay, uh, here's uh, another one about sort of the, the way we often argue that we can point out to things that evolutionists don't believe, and they try to spin it as a point in their favor because they say their method is self-correcting. Yeah, science is self-correcting is something they they often say. So the definition self-correcting, as in the self-correcting nature of science, adjective. The propaganda-style positive spin evolutionists always put on their multitudinous past mistakes and hoaxes, a mercy not afforded to the church. I think you're right there, because if creationists come up with something that we can't answer, we're supposed to abandon creation. But if evolutionists don't have an answer, well, the point of science is to discover answers. Mm. So we've got to have um, equal weights and measures for both of us, don't we? A lot of times people have this idea that uh, science and religion are in conflict, or particularly the Bible and Christianity uh, somehow go against science. Mm-hmm. But that's known as the warfare thesis. And a lot of historians of science say that's way oversimplified and they, they reject that idea. 
there's a lot of ways in which, as we just mentioned, Christianity helps to support science. And where the church has made mistakes in the past, you know, so often evolutionists point to things like the the whole Galileo affair, or they accuse the church of once believing in a flat earth. Uh, the flat earth idea is really mm. uh, not even true. That's a that's a myth. The Galileo thing is more complicated. You know, it was really science versus science because mm. the Aristotelian philosophers of the day were the real advocates of the view that Galileo was critiquing. And the church just kind of bought into the mainstream science of the day and that that was the mistake that they made. Well, I think the Warfare thesis, I don't think there's any real historian who believes that. It was, it was yeah. a couple of non-historians in the 19th century who pushed this idea, but I think it's basically laughed at by anyone who knows any history. Mm-hmm. But it's still in the popular imagination, unfortunately. People uh, get this idea of a church thought of flat earth, Columbus refuted the flat earth. Well, no, total nonsense. But that's what people are thinking. People need to stop thinking that. And certainly the, the church can be self-correcting as well. I mean, when creationists realize that we're mistaken about something in a scientific model, our presupposition is scripture, so we're not going to throw that out. But evolutionists have core commitments themselves as well, you know. They don't throw those out, but we develop scientific models to help us understand things. and. There are arguments that we've used in the past that we reject today. We've got a whole page called Arguments Creationists Should Not Use, where we detail some of these. But I find that the evolutionists don't often highlight their huge amount of mistakes that they've made over the years. Hoaxes, wrong thinking that was driven by evolutionary assumptions, like the whole junk DNA paradigm, right? They thought most of our DNA, most of our genome was garbage, just accumulated stuff from our evolutionary history, and now they're learning more and more that it is functional. So, in fact, that junk DNA is actually a, an anti-science position because it discouraged research into what yeah. ju- uh, the, so, the so-called junk DNA actually did. We find it's, it's almost all transcribed into RNA, so it's clearly doing something. But the idea of junk DNA uh, was an anti-science view. Yeah. A science stopper, if you like. Mm. Well, uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to us. Thank you, Keaton, for this uh, quite enlightening article of yours. Uh, please go and check it. So we hope to see you back next time and make sure you subscribe and you also look at our our social media places like Facebook and YouTube and Parler, all these places. So please uh, keep an eye out because these are going to keep coming. So thanks again for watching. Take care.